This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This episode of For Real is brought to you by Red or Dead, Book Riot's mystery thriller podcast. Grab your sleuthing hat readers and get your thrills with Red or Dead, Book Riot's bi-weekly mystery fiction podcast dedicated to the worlds of mystery and thriller literature. Join hosts and genre experts Rincey and Katie as they catch up on mystery and thriller news, chat about new releases, and recommend your next mystery and thriller reads. Get Red or Dead, that's R-E-A-D or Dead, on your podcatcher of choice. Welcome to For Real, a bi-weekly nonfiction books podcast that puts the spotlight on books that tell it like it is. Or try to. We'll cover new releases, backlist finds, and more. For Real is a Book Riot podcast and is hosted by me, Alice Burton, and fellow rioter Kim Eukera. We're recording on Friday, July 31st. Hello, Kim. Hello, Alice. How are you today? Um, I'm good. I can't think of July 31st without thinking of Harry Potter's birthday. And I know that we're all very upset. I know. Same. Correctly upset. Correctly upset. upset. That's a good emendation. Correctly upset with the comments of the Harry Potter author. But like, I feel like we can maybe separate the creation from the creator to a certain extent, right? Maybe? What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, so this is actually really – so my friend Courtney and a couple of other friends are very into um, Harry Potter and the Sacred Text, which is a podcast that has gone through the entire Harry Potter series reading the books as if they are a sacred text. And they're having – the whole community is having, a, as I understand it, a big conversation about this. And Courtney has brought up repeatedly the idea that like sacred texts in order to be sacred have to be problematic and you have to kind of grapple with some of the – complications that creators bring to them. She's a, a trained as a pastor, so she brings like that perspective to it. Uh, and that's what I've been trying to adopt when I think about Harry Potter is that the creator is problematic and we can distance ourselves from there and still really connect to these books that were meaningful to me when I was a kid and growing up. So I've been trying, but it's hard. Oh, like how in Paul's letters in the New Testament, he's like, love is patient, love is kind, et cetera, and it's beautiful. Mm -hmm. And then he's also like, women, you better shut up in church. So two things right there. Yes, yes, and that our sacred texts can be problematic and still be valuable and meaningful to us. So yes, Harry Potter's birthday can still matter, even if J.K. Rowling is a person who is not great. (laughs) You were just going to say a person. (laughs) I I almost stopped there and then I was like, well, we know she's a person. A lot of subtext in there. Um, (laughs) So I can't believe that we are almost at August. And when this episode comes out, we will be in August and indoors for so long. So long. So long. My goodness. Yeah, it's 2020 is the strangest year. It's the strangest. I keep thinking of like, what if we went back to March 1st and we like told ourselves, hey, (laughs) okay, a lot's about to happen. Here's what's coming. I need you to brace yourself. Buy a bunch of sweatpants because you're never going anywhere and you don't need to wear real pants anymore. Oh, sweatpants and cleaning wipes. I, oh, that was like, that was difficult in the early months. But (laughs) I feel like I'm 
already <laughs> thinking about I know people are talking about it like the before time and uh and then just like the early yeah. days of all this and we're in like month uh, anyway. Yeah. It's it's fine. I mean it's not fine, but we have podcasts. We do. And uh and they're they're a lovely little respite. So And books and we have many books. We have so many books. I feel like I've been reading a lot again after like kind of a little like break where I was not reading for like a week or two. Yeah, I had a little bit of an upswing at the end of July as well. So that was that's been nice. I'm determined to finish the second book in the V.E. Schwab series yes. today so that it will count towards yes. my July stats. I have like 30 more pages, so it's totally doable. Oh, I love that trilogy. It's so good. It's I, I like the second book a lot more than the first, I'm going to say. A Darker Shade of Magic is the, the first, and I don't remember what the second one's called. I don't either. That's why I didn't <laughs> – uh yeah reading it i know it's got the red black and white cover well it's the darker shade of magic trilogy the second book is what you're reading yes and it's it's very good i'm very annoyed by one of the main characters but that's fine with that let's talk about our first sponsor it's uh the last stargazers by emily levesque from source books so if you are into the stars as you should be because they are so old and so magnificent you might be interested in this book. So stargazing is this pursuit that continues to fascinate us. So if we look back at history, we've got Copernicus and even up to like Carl Sagan and his fun suits. Astronomy throughout history, well, and astronomers have spent their lives trying to answer the biggest questions in the universe, right? Like, are we the center of it? Or is the sun? Or are we not? Is there a much bigger thing? All these things people had to figure out from Earth, which if you think about it is like, gosh, just astonishing. So Emily Levesque is an award-winning astronomer, and she, in this book, shares stories of modern-day stargazers, so these people who are willing to adventure across high mountaintops and some of the most remote corners of the planet in the name of science. From the lonely quiet of midnight stargazing, which if you haven't done it is very fun, to tall tales of wild bears loose in the observatory. Oh my gosh. Those Last Stargazers is a love letter to astronomy and an affirmation of the crucial role that humans can and must play in the future of scientific discovery. Because what, is the bear going to like run the observatory? He can't do it. He doesn't have opposable thumbs. So... <laughs> Essentially, yeah, if you're into stars, if you're into, I guess, like modern history, because she talks about like, and it's it's similar to if you really liked uh, Lab Girl, then you would probably really like this. Or again, just sort of more nature science history books. This looks awesome. So again, that is The Last Stargazers by Emily Levesque. Thank you for sponsoring. That sounds very excellent. And I appreciated your geeking out about the stars. I love the stars. <laughs> Sorry. Amazing. I don't I feel like I didn't know that, but I feel like I should have. I don't talk about it on here very often, but I am constantly stopping and just staring at the sky and my fiance has to be like, we gotta keep walking. Come on. <laughs> That's so great. Oh, awesome. All right. So uh first up we'll have uh some nonfiction news and there's actually some uh, kind of interesting good news and then some sadder news to share this week. So the first piece of good and interesting news, I think, is uh, we'll link to an article from Entertainment Weekly 
HBO is making Ta-Nehisi Coates' book Between the World and Me into a TV special. So uh, Between the World and Me is written as this letter to his son looking at how white supremacy in America affected Ta-Nehisi Coates and his son. And so it was uh, adapted into a stage play. And so the HBO special will take some of the stage production, readings from the books, documentary footage from the home life of the actors, and all sorts of other stuff, some animation. Uh, and it's going to turn the book into a, a TV special, um, which I think is really, really cool. Between the World and Me is just a really beautiful read. I think it's one that like should have gotten more mentioned on a bunch of the anti-racist reading lists that have come out in the last few months. Um, I, I didn't see it on a ton of them, which I think is a missed opportunity because it's really great and just gives you a very like intimate look at one person's experience with racism and done in such a stunning and well-written way. So uh, that is going to be a TV special on HBO, which I think is awesome. So didn't have any dates on it as far as I can see, but we'll look for that at some point. Oh, it's going to try to premiere this fall. So that'll be cool. Nice. Yeah. Uh, And then the second one, um, as many of you probably know, uh, Representative John Lewis passed away in the last couple of weeks um, after a battle with pancreatic cancer. Um, And I only bring that up because he is an author and has written several books. And um, his his March trilogy, which is um, some graphic novels that he was part of writing uh, memoirs about his experience um, in the civil rights movement, have been widely acclaimed and well-read. And um, I found a really nice Washington Post article kind of just talking about the memoir and what it meant and um, why it's such an important piece of writing in addition to all of the other great work that he did throughout his life. So wanted to link to that and just make a mention of it because I think that's a, a huge loss and a good opportunity to revisit some of those things. Yeah, definitely. And sort of like continuing down the HBO rabbit hole, if you will. (laughs) Uh, We talked a a while ago about how there was going to be a documentary about Michelle McNamara's book, I'll Be Gone in the Dark, on HBO, uh, all about sort of her quest for the Golden State Killer to, you know, find out who he was. And so it came out, they so far, as of the time of our recording, five episodes have come out. I don't remember how many they're going to be total. I wonder if it was five. I wouldn't be surprised if it was six, though. So I've watched four of them, hence the unsureness about the total. And it's so good. It It is indeed scary, right? But there, it's such a, like, if you've read the book, I think it's extra interesting because they have a lot of her, like, Michelle McNamara's audio, right? So she would, like, be in the car with someone. They'd be driving through the neighborhoods where the Golden State Killer struck and they would kind they kind of in the documentary almost like reenact it. So they'll video the person who was showing her around in the car and they'll be playing Michelle McNamara's audio from when she drove with that person. So it's it's like she's there, which is, you know, kind of like almost like poignant and bittersweet. But and the the end of the fourth well, I don't want to give anything away, but basically they also, you know, deal with Michelle McNamara's passing and Patton Oswalt is heavily interviewed uh, as well as people who worked with her. It's just, I think it's really well done. And um, again, like, I don't know if I'd watch it if I was like by myself at night, but I definitely have watched it by myself, uh, meaning like alone in the room because um, my, my fiance, she is not very into true crime. And it's like, why would you want to watch something scary, like, on purpose? And sure, sure, I get that. But, um, no, it's it's extremely well done and great job, HBO. That was going to be my question to you is how scary do you think this is? Because that book, um, I could not read it at night or by myself. 
Yeah, I mean, I think that it's it's not like giving me nightmares or anything like the documentary. I think that they separate they like, you know, make it so much a part of like this happened in like 1970, whatever. And then, Mm -hmm. you know, so you don't really feel like and the fact that now when I read the book, I, I don't think he'd been caught. Yes, that is also true. Yeah, same. So yeah, so having having him be caught and being like, oh, you're like this like, just terrible old man now. I think that's helpful when in terms of the the general scariness. Yeah, that's a super good point. Yeah, I cool. Very good. Thank you for giving us an update on that. Because I feel like we have we talked about that. And when we first heard about it, because we were both excited, but I have not sat down and watched it yet. I would do it if you're like at all into the book. I think that the documentary is worthwhile. Awesome. All right. So uh, now that we've rounded up some news, we're going to shift into our for our regular segment of new books, which are books coming out this week or within the last couple of weeks that we are excited about or have had a chance to read. So uh, my first pick for new books this week is called Inferno, a memoir of motherhood and madness by Catherine Cho, uh, which is coming out August 4th from Henry Holt. And so this, I'm just going to read a sentence from the description because I think it does a really good job. So Inferno is a riveting memoir of a young mother who is separated from her newborn son and husband when she's involuntarily committed to a psychiatric ward in New Jersey after a harrowing bout of postpartum psychosis, which sounds intense and the book is intense. So it opens up with her waking up in this mental hospital, not entirely sure how she got there. Uh, And so she writes about kind of what it is like to be in this mental ward and not really having a good sense of why she is there instead of where she thinks she should be. And she has this list with her, this notebook, and this list of things that she knows are true, that she is a wife, that she is a daughter, that she is a mother, but otherwise just cannot really place herself. And so if you go from that kind of scene to jumping back to the birth of her son and then talking about how she and her husband decided to come to the United States from London to introduce the baby to her family and how that choice to do it quickly after he was born goes against a lot of the traditions um, that her Korean family follows about people kind of staying home while after birth and those kind of things. And so And then the story kind of jumps back to her in the hospital where she writes a little bit more about what it's like to be there and then sort of jumps back and forth from her being in the hospital and the process that she's using to try and kind of reconstruct her identity. So she writes about her parents, she writes about past relationships, she writes about falling in love with her husband, and um, just kind of figuring all of that out. And so it is a really intense book. She writes very clearly and very elegantly about her time in the hospital but she also is writing the book in such a way that she's not revealing to you more than she kind of knew at the time and so there's this little like mystery kind of element that is moving through it as she's trying to kind of understand what her mental illness is and like what actually happened to her and so there's this kind of mysterious and disorienting feeling to the whole thing that I have really kind of enjoyed in a weird way but the writing is really beautiful so she's very descriptive but it also feels kind of plain spoken and thoughtful. Uh, And it's just a really, um, just an interesting book, both about mental illness and about Korean American families and motherhood and all of these different kinds of things. So that is Inferno, a memoir of motherhood and madness by Catherine Cho. That reminds me of, I don't even know what years that publishing trend was happening, but in terms of fiction, how you had all these kind of like, almost like unreliable narrator fiction books written Mm, by women, mm -hmm. which I guess, well, wait, is Gone Girl, does the main woman have, she has like a narrative part in that, right? It's not just the husband. Yeah. Yeah. So there was like that. And then I read, I think Before I Sleep was like that, where like she wakes up and every day and she like forgets about the day. And then like she finds a journal she writes to herself and like that kind of thing. 
But that, gosh, hearing that from like a nonfiction standpoint, that's, uh, as you say, intense because, uh, my gosh, <laughs> I just like, I don't even, uh, I'm not, I have no actual like resources or background to speak to that other than just be like, wow, I will look that book up. My next pick is very different from that. I have no segue for it because I'm going back to the <laughs> 15th and 16th century and the Tudor dynasty. Okay, so my pick is Uncrowned Queen, The Fateful Life of Margaret Beaufort by Nicola Tallis. I mean, okay, so I'm like most people who like British history. I am a sucker for the Tudors. You, you can't not be. They're fascinating. And <laughs> there's so much drama that happens with them in such a short mm-hmm. period. Like they reign from 1485 to 1603. And then basically you're done. Like you could argue we're not going to talk about James. But anyway, so <laughs> Margaret Beaufort is the reason for them. She is why the Tudors happened. And in Nicola Tallis's biography, Uncrowned Queen, it's because she essentially, Margaret Beaufort, was a queen, but she like not, you know, technically or legally or anything. So in 1485, as stated, her son, Henry VII, became the first Tudor king. This is at the end of what you might have heard of. It's the War Wars of the Roses. And this was like Henry VI, and then he gets, like, booted off the throne, and then Edward comes on, and then he gets booted, and it's just like, they keep fighting. And Margaret Beaufort was, like, growing up amid all of that, and then marrying a succession of dudes, having Henry VII when she was, I'm gonna be generous and say 13, but I think it might have been 12. Like, it was, even at the time, people were like, oh, this is kind of early, So she, you know, again, so she's like 12 or 13 years older than her son, and he ends up being the only child she has, and because the dynasties, like, keep changing, the throne keeps changing hands, and he is very connected to one of them, because of that, she sends him to, he goes to France, and she basically looks out for his interests and keeps him alive. Like, she's sending him notes being like, don't come back right now, they're going to try to trick you and bring you back, you're going to get killed. And she's, like, pulling all the strings in England to bring Henry VII to the throne. So this book is very obviously focused on her perspective, but so you get to see the Wars of the Roses and, like, King Richard III from, like, her vantage point. And you're like, oh, I know what happens with Richard III, but also I'm still nervous about, like, <laughs> whether Henry will take the throne. I would say the first two-thirds are really interesting. And then once Henry comes on, I would say the last third gets, like, a little bit, like, Nicola Tallis is kind of a nerdy historian, and she she's like, I've spent tens of hours reading about what she spent money on in her kitchen, so let's talk about what they ordered at this feast. And I'm like, I don't know that we need to know about that, Nicola. But overall, I would say if you want to read about a Tudor woman who you don't know that much about and to kind of get this view of the Wars of the Roses from like a single a singular like perspective, like a single person. I think this is really good for that. It definitely made me feel at the end like I understood the Tudor dynasty so much better. So again, that is Uncrowned Queen, The Fateful Life of Margaret Beaufort by Nicola Tallis. That sounds very excellent. I do like the idea of like (laughs) the whole feast uh, listed out and how not interesting that might be at sometimes, but that's okay. Well, and just like, and also people are always gifting each other golden cups back then. And I tried asking Twitter, (laughs) if anyone listening knows, is that like they didn't have PayPal? So like if you wanted to send someone money, you would be like, here's a golden cup. And they'd be like, cool, thanks. Like, and they knew how much that was worth. I just don't, I don't understand the golden cup thing. I I have no answers for you. (laughs) 
All right, my uh, my next pick is another one that takes a real turn, so no transition here. Uh, it's called Unspeakable Acts, True Tales of Crime, Murder, Deceit, and Obsession, edited by Sarah Weinman, uh, which is a collection of true crime that came out July 28th from Echo. So it is an anthology of modern true crime writing. So the book opens by giving kind of a brief history and current state of true crime writing. So it looks at kind of how true crime writing has evolved, kind of the proliferation of true crime like writing and podcasts and documentaries and TV shows and all of that. And then goes into kind of a brief look at all of the problems that there are inherent in true crime. So the idea that it kind of glorifies violence, that it can often ignore victims. And then there's an interesting point about how it focuses a lot on individuals and individuals committing crimes rather than some of the systemic issues that are part of the whole criminal justice system, which I thought was a really interesting point and then comes up in some of the pieces that are part of the anthology. So the introduction suggests that the pieces in the book, there are 13 of them, push back on some of these problems of true crime and sort of show how you can do true crime writing without falling into some of these traps, which I think is absolutely true. Um, These are so good. So the book is divided into three sections. Uh, The first part is kind of these classic true crime features. So they're pieces that are kind of exactly what you would expect. They're about specific crimes and people and that kind of stuff, but they are done in kind of interesting ways and they approach them in ways that I think are kind of more empathetic than you might have previously seen in true crime writing. The second are pieces about how true crime interacts with culture and with itself. And then the last third is issues of criminal justice and society. So um, I'm like two thirds of the way through this one and it is so good. (laughs) Like there are just some really incredible pieces in here. There's one that is uh, the article that was kind of the inspiration for the show, The Act, which is about a case of Munchausen syndrome by proxy, but focuses a lot on the people rather than kind of the, the effects of the violence in that particular story, which I thought was really good. My favorite one so far is, I think, the second essay in the book, which is a profile about the very first person who was shot in the University of Texas mass shooting in 1966 which is one of the first kind of horrific acts of mass gun violence in the United States. And so it's about her, so her life uh, on that day and everything that has happened since and how uh, shooting 50, more than 50 years ago um, still kind of affects her today. And it's just, it's such a good profile and just so kind and, but also kind of probing into some of the ways that these, the different ways people react to being part of a a horrific violence like that, um, which I thought was really well done. So yeah, it's just, they're all great. The writing is excellent. They are all a a little bit different. And so you're getting very good examples of different kinds of contemporary true crime writing. Uh, And I like that they're bite-sized. Like most of them are not super long. And so you kind of It's nice when you don't have much of an attention span. You can kind of pick it up, read one, and then put it down and try something else for a while. So um, I've really enjoyed this one. I think I'm going to finish in the next couple of days because I've just been flying through it. That is Unspeakable Acts, True Tales of Crime, Murder, Deceit, and Obsession, edited by Sarah Weinman. Well, and I told you uh, right before the podcast that I was jealous that you – I didn't even see this galley, like, coming out. Like, I didn't know this was a new book. So – and this looks fantastic. Did – if it's edited – by Sarah Wyman. So it has a bunch of different true crime authors writing in it? Yes. Okay. I am going to open up and I'm going to tell you some names. The mo- most of them were not familiar to me. Michelle Dean, Pamela Kolkoff is the one who wrote the one I liked so much. Sarah Marshall, Emma Copley Eisenberg, who just wrote oh. a book called the, um, you talked about it on a previous episode of the podcast. Is it the Rainbow Girls? Yes. Mm-hmm. She's got an essay in here. 
Yeah, most of them were names that I'm not super familiar with. No, that sounds so good. And Sarah Weinman, we talked uh, on the podcast before about her book, The Real Lolita. Yes. About the Mm -hmm. kidnapping of Sally Horner. And that is so good. So yeah, I would totally trust her to to do an anthology like this. And I love an anthology. Because then if you find an author that you like who writes like a little piece, then you can go and find like more of their works. Oh, it's just great. Exactly. So good. Okay, so gosh, none of none of these books have a through line that we're doing for a new. But I know. That's, that's why we do the second segment so that we have like a nice little through. Okay, so I am trying to focus a little bit, like, or do some scattered children's lit, either children's or or young adult lit, because we don't talk about it much on here. And I know a lot of parents are home with their kids all the time now, so maybe they're looking for some new reads. Uh, so this. New book. This looks awesome, actually. It's She Was the First, The Trailblazing Life of Shirley Chisholm by Catherine Russell Brown, illustrated by Eric Velasquez. It's for ages 6 to 11, and it's 40 pages long. Um, So if you kind of are like, my kid is in like second grade, but I would really like to teach them about American history and like people who made a difference, um, this seems like a good option. So essentially, this talks about how Shirley Chisholm from like grade school through college when she was like on the debate team and then using her voice and leadership to fight for educational change and working in community groups and just, you know, like doing this like grassroots build until uh, she became the first black woman elected to the New York State Assembly and then the first black woman elected to Congress and in 1972, the first black woman to seek the presidency of the United States. And they talk about how she pushed for laws that helped women, children, students, um, poor people, farm workers, Native people, and uh, others who were often ignored. She fought for healthcare and military veterans. Like, you know, Shirley, <laughs> Shirley Chisholm was a force. And um, having this book, it's written by – so Catherine Russell Brown is a professor of law and the director of the Center for Race and Race Relations at the University of Florida. So it's awesome that – I love when academics write – books aimed at kids you know because it's like they have Mm -hmm. so much info and then they distill it into like these well again it's 40 pages and then illustrated so yeah if you're looking for a new book for your kid or if you're just are like you know what i don't need to read a giant biography of shirley chisholm because i don't think there is one right now someone write that please and then check this out it's she was the first the trailblazing life of shirley chisholm by Catherine russell brown so glad you talked about that one. Yeah, there's such a there's a ton of really good children's books coming out now that I, I'm glad you mentioned this one. Uh, I had not heard of it, but it looks really fun. I'm hoping that we do it just like a little more often. Like, you know, we don't have to like mainly talk about kids books because that's not our format, but like every every now and then. Yes. Excellent. All right. So um, before we move on, we'll do our second sponsor. So uh, this episode is sponsored by Flatiron Books, which is the publisher of Being Lolita by Allison Wood. So this book is a memoir about a dark relationship that evolves between a high schooler and her English teacher. Uh, it's a breathtakingly powerful memoir about a young woman who must learn to rewrite her own story. Susan Choi, the author of Trust Exercise, calls the memoir powerful. And Darren Strauss, author of Half a Life, says, In the era of Me Too, Wood's voice will change things for the better. This is the story about what happens when a young woman realizes that her entire narrative must be rewritten and then takes back the pen to rewrite it herself. So Alison Wood is an award-winning writer. Uh, her essays have been published in the New York Times, Catapult, and Epiphany. She has an MFA in fiction from New York University. She also teaches creative writing at her alma mater and at the Sackett Street Writers Workshop. So Being Lolita by Alison Wood from Flatiron Books. 
All right. So uh, this week we thought that we would do a segment looking at some anti-racist history books. So books that look at issues of race and racism in the United States from a historical perspective that um, might be useful for rounding out some of your anti-racist reading. Because I think that history and context matters and understanding how things got to the way they are is a really important part of trying to make change. So uh, in addition to just reading books like How to Be an Anti-Racist by Ibram X. Kendi, um, these are some historical books that might kind of give you some additional facts and information. Uh, I don't know, do you have anything else to add, Alice? No, I think that you summed it up pretty well. All right. So my first pick for this is one that's been on my radar for a long time, and I'm glad I finally took the step to pick it up for this. And it's called The Color of Law, A Forgotten History of How Our Government Segregated America by Richard Rothstein. And this book came out in 2017 from LiveWrite. And it is a look at all of the ways that governments, from federal to state to local, uh, imposed and supported racial segregation. And he uses kind of this history of uh, neighborhood segregation to make some arguments about about constitutional law that are more complicated than I feel comfortable trying to explain, but I will do my best. So he looks at a bunch of different ways that the government, the various governments have systematically imposed segregation on communities. He talks about racial zoning. He talks about public housing that caused segregation in communities, even in communities that were previously mixed. There was a, a period where there were rules about public housing had to match the racial racial makeup of the community around it. And so that by doing that, it continued to kind of enforce that, or it started to push smaller groups of people out of neighborhoods and continued segregation there. There's sections about subsidies for contractors and builders to build white-only suburbs, um, about tax exemptions for institutions that enforced segregation, and support for violent resistance to African Americans in white neighborhoods. And so he looks at kind of all of these really big systemic ideas and shows how all of these add up to the idea that segregation that happens in communities is not the result of individual choices or personal prejudice or just like the economy is how we ended up with all of these segregated neighborhoods. No, it's because of specific policies and choices that the government made that enforced segregation in these communities. And so the reason that that matters, that uh, racial segregation is not just a thing that a bunch of individual people kind of decided to do and then, oh, now we have segregated neighborhoods. He argues that it's actually a big constitutional issue. And so that if the government was part of causing segregation through these various policies, it goes against the 13th Amendment. And therefore, the government has an obligation to aggress it because it's unconstitutional. And the argument is much more nuanced and complicated than that. And I am not a law person, so I don't want to like go too far down in it. But basically, it's just a history of racial segregation and how we got there and how we got to the segregated neighborhoods that we have today. And I just, every chapter, it says a lot about like how limited my knowledge of U.S. history is that every chapter has a bunch of stuff in it that I had never heard of and I didn't know it happened. And really just in addition to kind of talking specifically about neighborhood segregation, also just gives a really good overview of the different ways that governments have tried to enforce Jim Crow laws and separate people and diminish the opportunities for African Americans and other minority communities. Um, and so I think I appreciate kind of getting that perspective on history and the different eras and stuff that we've had in the United States, because um, there's a lot of stuff happening. And a lot of it is really bad and was perpetrated by people that we otherwise uh, historically, I think, have looked at as excellent people. And that is 
it's hard to, to grapple with, but important to grapple with too. So um, I think this one's really good. It's definitely, um, it's really smart. So I have to read it slowly because I want to try and make sure I'm understanding everything that's happening. But so a little bit denser of a read than some others, but he's actually, it's not actually as long as it looks. It's only like 270 pages of stuff. And then there's a lot of end notes. So I don't think it's quite as intimidating as the size of it may make it look, but uh, it's really great. So the Color of Law, A Forgotten History of How Our Government Segregated America by Richard Rothstein. I know this is not the actual takeaway from the book, but I love when I am reading a book and then I realize that there's like 100 pages of endnotes and I am so much closer to the end than I thought. I know. I was I picked it up and like in paperback, it actually doesn't look super intimidating. And I was kind of flipping through it like, OK, what's what's this look like? And I got it. And yeah, it's only 250 pages. And then the notes are another like 100 pages. And I was like, yes, good. Okay, I can handle this. It also makes you feel better because you're like, wow, look at all the research that this person did in this uh, book that I am reading. No, I've seen that book around a lot. And I have been meaning to pick it up. And that sounds like I when you were saying like these people who we like thought were working for a good like, now I'm like, oh, who were those people? Oh, I should read this. Woodrow Wilson hit some not good. Woodrow Wilson did some bad stuff around housing and race. Woodrow Wilson did so many bad things. He is. I know. Uh, he's on my uh, bad list. Is <laughs> 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 what I'm going to say on this PG podcast. <laughs> All right. So my next book is. I would say, again, we have like a through line in this section. So it is Race for Profit, How Banks and the Real Estate Industry Undermined Black Homeownership by Kianga Yamata-Taylor. If that name sounds familiar, it is because she is awesome and uh, has written a number of things. So she's assistant professor of African-American studies at Princeton. And she also wrote uh, From Black Lives Matter to Black Liberation and also that book about the Cumbie River Collective which she mainly edited, but essentially she just says a lot of amazing things. This book, Brace for Profit, was her thesis uh, in 2013. So it's again, it's focusing on Black homeownership primarily in the 60s and 70s and talks about how after in the like late 60s, right, we had all of this um, civil unrest in America. And so politicians are like, all right, you know, we we have redlining, as we just heard about from Kim's book. So how do we fix this? And they decided, oh, well, we'll have um, Black city dwellers become homeowners. And they passed the Housing and Urban Development Act of 1960 which uh, is HUD. You know, you've probably heard of it. And they started to, they were like, we have to create policies that will like make mortgage lenders and the real estate industry ideally treat black homebuyers equally. This didn't work at all because of racism and uh, predatory behavior. So, and then like the results of that, Kianga Yamata-Taylor argues, are basically still being felt today. And they're still used as like reasoning for why black homeowners should not be helped out. So, they took these policies that they tried to create to create like homeownership and basically made it so that it was incredibly predatory and caused a lot of foreclosures. So it was like they would do these incentives. They would target black women who were most likely to fail to keep up their home payments, which is like saying that honestly makes <laughs> Like, I'm, like, furious right now, just, like, saying that sentence. And so they would then go into foreclosure, and then these bankers and investors would get a lot of money as a result of this. So by the end of the 1970s, these, like, programs that were encouraging Black homeownership, um, in name at least, ended with, all like, thousands of foreclosures in Black communities. And so 
this is being used by people who were like, well, those programs don't work because look what happened when we tried to do it. And it's, again, so maddening. But this is the type of story that needs to be told. And so, like, the fact that Taylor's, like, going into this and being like, here are the steps that happened. Here's why it didn't work. Like, gosh, I just, again, I just, she's an amazing scholar and this book is awesome. So, again, that is Race for Profit. How Banks and the Real Estate Industry Undermined Black Homeownership by Kianga Yamata Taylor. That is an excellent pick. And yeah, I think it goes really well with The Color of Law because it's about kind of the same issues, which is around uh, segregation and black homeownership. And and homeownership is such a big part of like what we talk about in the quote unquote American dream and the way that you build up personal wealth and family, you know, wealth and stability. And so that there are all these policies to try and prevent that for people is really just disheartening and wrong. All right. So my second pick is one that we have talked about on the podcast before, but I finally got around to reading it and it's awesome. And that is A Black Woman's History of the United States by Diana Ramey Berry and Kelly Nicole Gross. And this book came out in February and it's part of um, a series of books called Revisioning History from Beacon Press. And this is the fifth book in this series, which basically they're all a certain kind of history of the United States. And so there's one about Latinx history of the United States. There's one about queer history of the United States, disability history of the United States, I believe, indigenous people's history. So this is one in that series. um, And I'm anxious to pick up the other ones because I really like this one a lot. So uh, in this book, two award-winning historians seek to center Black women's stories in the history of the United States and want to empower African-American women and show their allies the Black women's unique ability to make their own communities while combating centuries of oppression is an essential component in our continued resistance to systemic racism and sexism, uh, which that is straight off the book jacket, but it's so good that I just wanted to just quote it. So this book, what they do, the, the approach of it is really interesting. So they take every chapter and they center Black women's voices to tell their stories across history. And in chapters where it is hard to find Black women's voices because they just were not given an opportunity to share them, they try to infer and find their stories and find their voices kind of on the margins. And I think it's really ends up being a very compelling book, kind of approaching history from that way. So each chapter focuses on the experience of a specific woman, then uses kind of her story to broaden out and talk about Black women at that particular time or in that particular moment. So they prioritize many different kinds of voices. They have voices from enslaved women, from free women, from religious leaders, artists, queer women, activists, renegades, all sorts of different things. So every chapter has a different lens. And I'm not a historian, so Alice, you may be able to (laughs) correct me on how I'm interpreting this, but um, the approach that they're using is new to me. And so it's basically that they go and they find out that Black women were at a particular moment in history. Like they find that they're listed in manifests or in the case of enslaved women as property or something like that. And so then they use that evidence to say, we know Black women were here. We know they were part of this moment and this experience. So this is what we confer about what their life must have been like based on what we know about other people whose voices are more more prevalent at that time. And so there, it feels a little bit like they're kind of making stories where we don't have a clear historical record of what that person's voice was, but they're finding their voice in the in-between almost. And I really am finding that very interesting. So yeah, I've just, it's really great. And it's kind of a huge history of the United States. It starts back even before the United States were the United States. And then is kind of moving forward through today to show how black women have been part of resistance and change throughout our entire history. And it's it's really great. So that is A Black Women's History of the United States by Dana Ramey Berry and Kelly Nicole Gross. 
Yeah, and both of the like both of those women are fantastic historians, and mm-hmm. the fact that they were able to write this in such a, a short space, basically, like it's you know it's less than three hundred pages, I think. Mm-hmm. It, it was really impressive, honestly. If you, I th- as the listener, I encourage you if you're at all interested in history to look up. There's like a there's a very specific Twitter niche of black women historians and they are doing fantastic work and i'm like constantly just like so they are always like i have this new book coming out that's like with an academic press so you you might not hear about it otherwise and like it always is like just like this really interesting topic and i am so done with white male historians writing black history you would not believe the number of those books that we have to be like no <laughs> when we're like sorting through <laughs> things and so yeah to have Callie Nicole Gross and Dana Ramey Berry writing this book it's just it makes me really happy thanks for talking about it Kim my last pick is 1919 by Eve L. Ewing so Eve L. Ewing is a, a Chicago author poet uh, again historian and she is a fantastic. This book is, again, pretty short, but she is writing about... Okay, so she was writing this book, Ghosts in the Schoolyard, uh, Racism and School Closings on Chicago's South Side. And while she was doing research for it, she found this document from 1922 that was like, here is a sum up of the race relations and the race riot from 1919. And it was from a committee that was, I think, like half... I think it was black men and half white men. Don't quote me on that. But every one of – so 1919, her book, is about that riot, and every one of the poems in it is an answer to, like, a paragraph in the document that she found from 1922. I love poetic nonfiction. I love Jacqueline Woodson's Brown Girl Dreaming. Like, this is kind of in that line if you're able to do it, and I think it's very hard to do. I'm so impressed by it. So part of it is she says that she likes to use poems as what if machines, which is also a Futurama reference, which I was like, oh my gosh, (laughs) I'm so delighted in the middle of the story of this horrible, horrible thing. Real quick, the Chicago race riot of 1919 was a violent racial conflict started by white Americans against black Americans. It began on July 27th. So we're we're at the 101st anniversary, basically on the south side and during it 38 people died 23 were black 15 were white and about 1000 to 2000 people who lost their homes were mostly uh, black so and this all started because it was summer and like summer in the midwest it's like really muggy and you want to be at the beach and there was this african american teenager named eugene williams he was 17 and he had like it says inadvertently drifted into this white swimming area like on like 29th street like he was supposed to be at like 25th street right and then but it's a beach so you can't see stream anyway so the raft that he was on drifted into this area and this white beachgoer started throwing rocks at the black teens who were on the raft and one hit williams and he drowned and so black beachgoers started complaining that whites were attacking them and then basically uh white mobs started attacking blacks when you when you hear race riot this is basically always what happens like it's I don't want again, I don't want to get too into it because I, <laughs> I'm clearly, uh, it brings up a lot of feelings as it should, but it was a horrifying riot as they always are. And Eve Ewing kind of encapsulating this again in like a pretty short space, but taking, using her, her skills at sort of the telling of history and poetry. And she just, she just does a fantastic job. So this is, she tells the story of the event. It lasted eight days. 
she talks about the like everyday people who were trying to survive in the city. And she also uses uh, it's a speculative and Afrofuturist lenses to recast history, which is part of that whole what if machine part. So again, it's really short. I would check it out if I were you. It's 1919 by Eve L. Ewing. That sounds fascinating. We should do an episode in sometime about poetic nonfiction. <gasps> that would be. We should. That'd be so good, wouldn't it? Yeah. Awesome. That sounds really fascinating. Excellent pick. All right. So now we will close out the podcast as we normally do by talking about the books that we are reading uh, right at this very moment. Oh, right. So I am reading Wave by Sonali Dharani Yagala. This book is very intense, very heavy. Uh, Essentially in 2004, when she was at a beach resort on the coast of Sri Lanka, um, Sonali Dharani Yagala and her family, so this was like her parents were there, her husband, her two sons, they were swept away by a tsunami. This was the 2004 Indian Ocean tsunami that killed over 200,000 people on December 26, 2004. And only she, of like all the, like, right, again, parents, husband, sons, only she survived. So this book is her t- like walking you through how what happened. And again it is it is very hard but it is very well done. I'm actually finding it in the midst of like everything going on in the world. It's kind of that thing where you're like obviously what she went through is is unfathomable, but it's it's such a mindset of like this is awful and like almost like accepting the awfulness and being like what do we do next and how do you keep going and i i'm finding it weirdly comforting to read or at least being like yes that tone do you know what i mean is that making any sense Mm -hmm. so yeah it's not like normally like i stay away from like darker books in a way that i'm like that's gonna bring me down but wave i'm like really again in like a very oblique way relating to Sonali Darian Yagala is now married to actress Fiona Shaw, by the way, which is a mm, she seems happy and that's amazing. It was a it was a weird thing when I Googled her and was like, oh wow, that's like your thing. Fiona Shaw seems great. She's on uh what is that show? Is she on Fleabag? Anyway, so yes, um Wave is very good and I recommend it. Yeah, I, that book is very intense and very hard, but I understand where you're coming from. I like that one. All right, so I have been reading a lot of fiction lately. Um, so the two books that I uh, have been reading lately, uh, the first one is The Air Affair by Ather Cox and Jessica Morgan, who are the people behind the blog Go Fug Yourself. Um, this is a kind of a British royal family fan fiction-y kind of book about an American woman who marries the future king of England and uh, shenanigans ensue. Uh, it is a sequel to a previous book, and I love both of them very much. Uh, and then today I've been reading a book called The Rise of Kiyoshi by F.C. Lee, which is a book about from the Avatar The Last Airbender TV series about, uh, so it's the story of the Avatar that was two Avatars before the one in the TV show. Uh, and it's so good so Aww. far. So that's what I'm reading. <laughs> that's so nice. I'm so glad you went second <laughs> after my sad tsunami book. Um, oh, I wanted to say that I know she wasn't on Fleabag, uh, Fiona Shaw. The reason I thought she was, she was on Killing Eve, which was season one was run by Phoebe Waller-Bridge of Fleabag. So not totally wrong. There you go. So in conclusion, you can find us on social media. I am at It's Alice Time and Kim is at Kim the Dork. And our amazing audio editing is done by Jen Zink. 
And if you have a minute and feel so inclined, please feel free to rate and review the podcast on Apple Podcasts. Uh, That helps people find us more easily. And while you're there, you can subscribe so you get new episodes the very minute that they come out. So with that, I'm Kim Ugra. And I'm Alice Burton. And we thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Four Wheel Podcast.